not a wizard. I'm the chief engineer. You wear a wizard's robes. This is absurd. I don't know where these came from. They disappeared. Proof of your powers, wizard. Halt your dark deeds, accursed Crimson Guard. Your hour of cruelty is at an end. For King Ridley is here to strike fear in your evil hearts. Um... Transfer complete. All hail the king. Welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the throne... (laughs) This is Tyler Orton rewatching Robin Hood Men in Tights, except without any of the laughs. So Robin Hood Men in Tights, then. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. And we're here this week to talk about the latest episode, episode eight of Strange New Worlds, season one, The Elysian Kingdom. Cam? Yes. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Oof. Uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, we were talking about, you know, that, that, uh, episode, uh, where suffering knows no end. That's not the yeah. actual episode title, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I said that was probably the first dud, you know, it wasn't necessarily like a terrible episode to watch. It just fell flat for me. Oh boy. <laughs> I did not know what was in store. Uh, just two episodes later with the Elysian Kingdom. This was just a flat out bad episode of Star Trek. And, uh, it maybe for some people I like Move Along Home. This is perhaps, you know, kind of, uh, the, the analog to Move Along Home from, uh, season one of Deep Space Nine here. I, I, I always go back to this, Cam. You, you've heard me enough times ask you uh, this same question again and again when it comes to movies or TV shows. And it's, what is the message here? And the message here apparently is, it is up to Dr. Joseph Mabenga to decide whether or not his sick daughter, terminally ill daughter, for whom is in a sort of stasis in which she's okay for now, while medical science tries to figure something out for her condition, well, it's up to him to determine that uh, she's going to live for eternity. I don't really recall her being included in that decision making but she Mm -hmm. appears happy by the end of it when she's an adult looking like her mother deborah uh i don't don't, cam this one just even from the uh the the acting choices to the lack of laughs to just kind of the uh directing this one is i i think the first all-out bad episode of strange new worlds no i i i don't think it is it is this is just a bad episode of star trek period you gotta admit the art direction was pretty good though yeah props to them props to them for uh some nice costuming and yeah it really it really emulated one of my other favorite star trek episodes uh uh masks but instead of medieval kingdom uh you, you know masks yeah. was all about that mayan temple right there so from tng I had a note probably about 20 minutes into this episode. So before like the real serious father-daughter stuff kicked in, I made a note. They finally got Tyler's spec script. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I've been. Yeah, this is what you've been my entire life. Feverishly for decades upon decades. They finally got your story. It was certainly one fan's, (laughs) uh, you know, fan script right here. (laughs) Like seriously. There's, I think... A lot of interesting things to tackle this episode, uh, you know, in terms of angles to look at it from. But for me, like, it's one I've been really interested in looking at the discourse online for because it's, you know, you look at IMDb, it's like it's clearly not a popular episode. It's the, so far the lowest rated of the whole season by a considerable margin. But if you start, like, looking around actual written reviews online, you know, by publications that are respectable, you see a lot of very, very good reviews for this episode. And I have noticed a lot of reviews are written by people who are parents who felt something very strongly for this episode. And I'm reminded a little bit of, you know, Tyler, you're an occasional listener of the Slash Filmcast. I've been listening to them for years. And I remember when they reviewed uh, Interstellar, they were not huge fans. They were kind of lukewarm on it. And I remember they got multiple letters from people being like, if you were parents, this movie would mean a lot more to you. And they were kind of like, oh, we didn't kind of realize that people would perceive that story very differently depending on where they are in life. And I think that may be a bit of the case here because like you, 
I found this one a chore to sit through. And I could respect, you know, the the Mbenga sick daughter storyline hasn't worked for either of us. I think we were both like wondering how long they were going to drag out this Dr. Mbenga needs to talk to another alien group about a potential cure. Like how long can this really go on for? So like I give this episode points for kind of surprising me in terms of how they resolved it. It wasn't what I expected. So I, I appreciated that. But the resolution, which maybe we can dive more into in a second, but like that was a little too pat for me and a little too fast and loose, just kind of done very quickly. And then also the story. I think it's very difficult to base a whole episode around a story where the audience has no idea what the plot of the story is. Star Trek often does episodes like this. You look at Cupid or the um, Beowulf episode. I think was it Darkling? I think it was called in Voyager. Yeah. I can't remember. The, yeah. So it's like those narratives exist. If you take a character through it, even if you don't know fully the story of Beowulf, you can kind of track the story. Just you, you kind of have a sense of it. The story as told in this episode, I found to be actors spewing gibberish that I found intensely confusing to try to even understand what was going on. I could like just listen to Mbanga give me exposition saying, oh, of course, this is the part where this happens. But there's no flow to that. And there's no ability for me to be swept up in a narrative. I just found the device to get to that end point even very frustrating. I, I just want to clarify one thing. Uh, the mm. Beowulf episode, I, I just double-checked, was in fact Heroes and Demons, right? whereas Darkling is another uh, Doctor-centric episode, but it's from Season 3. Okay, yeah. So Heroes and Demons is, yeah, a very frustrating episode as well. I, I think you bring up a, a really good point, though, is if we're not invested or we don't even have that kind of cultural uh, touchstone with regards to the story that is unfolding before us, it's just like how invested can I really be in what's going on and as you say, Cam, otherwise it just kind of feels like uh, gibberish that we're watching here. I, I like, I, but I, even then, I, I don't know if there's like a, what would be kind of an analog? I, I don't know. Let's say it is the uh, uh, Robin Hood. You know, yeah. they did that with Cupid, but at least I kind of know the gist of Robin Hood. And if that unfolded in such a manner, I could kind of uh, follow kind of where we were going and it would have been fun to see you know who was playing made marion versus you know uh the sheriff of nottingham blah 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 but i don't know i guess they're trying to tell a different story with this precious stone or i don't know it, it just it doesn't this one just doesn't work and i would venture look i, I get what you're saying about the whole parenting thing uh we're not parents uh we, we did receive no feedback when we did that uh, review of the short track, uh, The Girl Who Made the Stars, and that one did not work for us. And I, I remember people, or uh, at least one listener, was just like, well, you know, it's um, a it, it totally different experience for me uh, as a parent watching that one. And I can respect that. Mm -hmm. I can understand why somebody kind of um, have a connection to uh, that short track. This one, though, I just, I, I, I thought it was too thirsty for it to kind of hit the uh you know tug on the heartstrings you know like it, it wanted it too much you know and i i just don't know if it felt earned you know it, it's one of those situations people kind of gave a uh i don't know some uh, critiques of the hurt locker uh when they were saying like you know anybody could direct a uh a good action sequence if you know do you hit the uh the red wire or the green wire you know hmm. that's always going to build tension no matter what it's kind of an easy place to go to even though i think the hurt locker is a pretty good film oh yeah i just this one was just, like you said, Kim, this one was a chore to go through. And uh, it's very much how I, I felt, you know, season three of Discovery was, was, was a chore to go through. Like, I, I can't imagine rewatching that. Uh, it, if I do, it'll have to be a long way down the road. Whereas I, I thought season two of Picard was an utter narrative mess. But it was such a train wreck that it was not not really a chore to uh, sit through just because I, I, I couldn't wait to see how absolutely deranged it would become next. Whereas this one, I was just bored a lot of the time, did not know what was going yeah. on. And some of the acting choices, I like Anson Mount, but watching him prance down the corridors, like looking for laughs from that and an episode that I didn't think was particularly well directed, it just made it all the harder to... Uh, deal with that on top of a, a rather mediocre script. Is there a disconnect maybe for the two of us? Because I, I I mentioned the Beowulf and the Robin Hood stuff in the past. Like, have you ever been a fan of these types of Star Trek episodes where, it's, let's be honest, it's kind of theater kids dressing up and being silly for an hour? 
I thought Cupid was fun. Uh, I'm trying to think yeah. about... Yeah, well, okay, but how do you define that? In that, like, you can point to an episode, like, a bunch of the holodeck episodes, and your mileage will vary. You know, like, mm-hmm. Arman Bashir. Like, yeah. that was... Yeah, essentially, that was kind of a made-up story, but you kind of know, like, the basics of, you know, what a, what a spy movie's going to be like there. You know, like, I, I think these episodes can work. This one just didn't work. And I think it was for, like, a variety of reasons. But I was just like, uh, I don't know. Like, I, I kind of feel bad. And uh, we still haven't gotten that Ortegas episode that we've kind of been expecting for eight episodes at this point. Um, I, I Look, I, I do like how they loosened Hammer up to a certain degree. But then it just got really ridiculous by the end when he's doing abracadabra stuff. I'm just like... This is a completely different character than uh, who we've known. Like, I, I can appreciate them wanting to differentiate him from kind of that more aloof character. And kind of that first moment where he kind of, you know, uh, blew on that, uh, you know, uh, torch device that broke them out of the uh, the prison slash transporter. I was like, okay, you're having a little bit more fun with the character. But then they just kind of let it go a little too far. And I was just like, I I just think this is like... like I don't know. I don't want to pick on the director too much, but I just think that this is like a particularly poorly directed episode. I think when it comes to these kind of fanciful holodeck style episodes or whatever you want to call them, fantasy episodes, it's a real tough line to walk. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Our Man Bashir because that is one that did really work for me. Um, But they are few and far between. Like Elementary Dear Data is pretty fun as well. But I just think with them, it they rely so much on very sharp writing and making the narrative kind of carry you along. And a lot of them don't feel like that. A lot of them feel like actors putting on funny costumes and kind of mugging for the camera. And that's what this one felt like a lot to me, where this was a really long episode. If you are to compare it against, you know, other Star Trek series, this is one of the longest episodes of Star Trek ever. (laughs) It's like 53 minutes. Even original series are like 50 minutes. So like... It's double... Double the running time out of an average season two episode of Picard. <laughs> no kidding. So like maybe some tightening up could have worked or the the father daughter thing is frustrating because like I like that they're resolving this. It's something that like I think you and I were both concerned. They were going to dangle this over us for a long time to come. And that's one thing I like is when a show can kind of catch me off guard and resolve what seems like a dangling kind of mystery element or whatever you want to call it um and can wrap it up very quickly so like i give this episode points for that because i did not see that but like um i I just wonder if there's like something in terms of like baking that into the core of this episode so like i'm feeling an emotional response throughout the story versus frankly bewilderment for about eh, 45 minutes followed by okay well I have issues with this resolution just in terms of like character decisions and how quickly it is resolved. But like, I can appreciate that there was an emotional beat they were aiming for. It didn't feel like, like this episode would have been my worst nightmare if it had just ended with like, well, we solved the silly medieval, you know, fantasy realm story back to business as normal without any sort of character driven moment at the end like that would have been my nightmare yeah i get that but i keep coming back to this like what do you think of the resolution in which meng uh is saying okay yeah i've decided that my daughter will live for eternity rather than pass away and when she comes back uh as a woman she's like yay i've been living in these recreations and fantasies and she seems delighted in that but i'm just that seems kind of sad to me, uh, although I guess it does kind of par- go parallel with what we know of uh, uh, Pike coming up, where he's going to decide to live in kind of the, this fantasy uh, world of his own choosing uh, when he returns to uh, to uh, fi- or Talos 5, rather. But um, I yeah. don't know. It's just like, dude, it, 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 it angered me. Like this one, like uh, it, it really bugged me. It's a real mixed bag um, committing your life to a <laughs> immortal future with alien beings. Because we've seen that, like, you know, it worked out seemingly okay for Cisco, But, like, Charlie X was, like, screaming as he was hauled <laughs> off by those, you know, aliens in the episode Charlie X. And I, I did wonder, like, that, that's where I have issues with the resolution. It's like, I, I'm happy they surprised me. 
But at the same time, I'm like, it was dealt with so quickly where it's like, we give you this offer. And did you have um, imaginary friend vibes? Because I was definitely having those, that uh, notorious episode of TNG. Just, well, the best part, though, is somebody threw a piece of clay at uh, Alexander's head. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Right. But so you just get this very quick, like, you know, we want the child to come live with us and it, and, you know, she can live forever. And I'm like, wait. And I even just immediately made a note, like, live forever? That sounds questionable. Like, that's something that would take a lot of thought to really discuss. And I'm also like, this is also like a young child. So I don't know how Mbenga makes this decision for like an eight-year-old child. Like, as a parent, you have to be the advocate of your child. But like, it's not usually decisions about let them be immortal and outlive everyone they love. Um, So I, I don't know, like... I, Star Trek is typically best when it explores these issues, and this one didn't really explore it. It gave you a resolution, but didn't spend that time kind of interrogating the decision, because I think there's, clearly it worked out fine, but nonetheless, it it's a sort of decision that was made a little too quickly for me. Yeah, um, I, 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 I need to say it though, but just the number of corridor confrontations with sword fighting, hmm. I was just like... <laughs> You were like more, well, more. No, it's like oh yay! Now there, are, there's a bow and arrow. I'm just like uh, okay, you know. And, and then like I, I don't even understand. So like, okay, so they're clearly alluding to the fact that um the Raveness and uh, whoever Ortega's character was like they had intimate relations, but this is coming from the eight year old daughter's mind. Like she is, is she the one applying these intimate relations? And I'm talking about like sex, and you know like um yeah, or is it? Mabenga, who's <laughs> like applying these thoughts to his fellow crew members, like um, I don't like that. It's that sort of stuff that left like some question marks hanging over my head. I was just like, okay, because they're going for kind of a laugh there. It's like we know each other quite, quite well. Oh yeah, quite well. I'm just yeah. like, oh yeah, they they really really want us to laugh hard at that. And when when you're like um, desperate. For people to laugh, it, it makes you just kind of cringe to a certain degree, and it's just like uh, it's just that sort of stuff that uh, it's just is strewn about throughout the entire episode, or it's just stuff that just kept falling flat for me. Yeah, that's actually an excellent point I hadn't thought about because initially Ambenga thinks it's coming from him because he knows the story so well, and then we find out it's the daughter. Yeah. So, and the entity, um, Hammer drops this theory that I was like, eh, <laughs> where he mentions like. Oh, you know that theory where, like, basically this, like, godlike intelligence intelligence just can be born out of nowhere? I'm like, oh, I guess that's a thing. Sure, why not? I'll go with it. I mean, I've seen kind of, like, childlike, godlike beings on Star Trek before, so fine. But why would this entity that's just been potentially born be coming up with, like, these types of punchlines as well? That doesn't really make sense. <laughs> Did you see who wrote the book? Uh, no. Benny Russell. Oh, okay. Um, a common name, I suppose. I, I mean, I, I don't know how to read into that, you know, and like... Yeah, I mean, I think there's interesting things you can look at where both of the, um, the, the powerful figures in the story are both black characters, you know, with Mbenga and then also Uhura as the uh, evil queen. So I think that's noteworthy. But, but uh, just for people that might not recall, like uh, Betty hmm. Russell was uh, the Ben Sisko character in Far Beyond the Stars, the uh, the writer character from uh, the 1950s in which, yeah. you know, Ben continued uh, visions as Benny Russell as the show progressed. And, and anyways, uh, but yeah, please go on, Cam. No, no, but yeah, like, so I think like there's interesting elements there but it's not digging into them they're present but honestly like it's kind of it's going halfway with it you introduced like a benny russell element and to be fair it's very subtle but benny russell that whole story of far beyond the stars is very much about race in america and so if you're gonna tie that into a narrative here i would like it if it was commenting more on that through this fairy tale at least that would give me a little more substance Versus, as you said, sword fights in the hallway. Yeah, look, I, I this one, I, I <laughs> the, the good news is, Cam. Next week it'll be something different. Whereas I think if this was Discovery, we'd have an entire season <laughs> in which 
this is what's going on and uh you don't even find out uh what this deborah entity is until literally like like we saw here that last uh eight minutes of the episode well there was a uh news sort of story that popped up of michelle paradise talking about how there's no competition between strange new worlds and discovery and I feel like she said that because season five Discovery is all a fairy tale, all 10 episodes. <laughs> Can't wait. Ugh. I did think there were some interesting parallels with the Mbenga story that had been going on with like The Visitor, the classic DS9 episode where you have like this loved one who's kind of phasing in and out of existence while someone else is probably aging. I don't know how long she's been in that um, you know buffer pattern. Again, it's something that like they introduced, but they didn't do a lot with. But then I'm like stuck with the thought of like, am I happy that they just kind of like glossed over it and got it over with so we can see where Mbenga goes next? Or would I preferred extended periods exploring these sort of issues? I don't know. I'm really, I'm not sure. I would have preferred that they not rely on it. What was literally, as you kind of alluded to earlier, a Deus Ex Machina here. Like yeah. this is something that's resolved out of like nowhere. It's not based on anything that the uh, characters had made happen through their own will, which is frustrating to me. Where something like this is just kind of resolved. You know, go go back to the visitor. The way that that episode is resolved is that old Jake Sisko, he makes a decision. Yeah. He decides that uh, the life that he's led for the preceding, you know, uh, 50, 60 years was worth sacrificing in order to save Ben, you know, and that that's based on character decisions. And this was based on a fluffy cloud encountering a young girl trapped in a pattern buffer. Yeah. I know. And that's the thing. It's like, I would, I would like the idea of a story where Mbenga maybe has to make a sacrifice, but the fact that, I mean, I guess he does sort of, but like he gets an instant resolution of like, okay, I made a good decision. Apparently my child's happy. So like, that's not great. Like I would like it if that character had to sit with that more the way that like DS9 stories did, or some of the great TNG stories did where it's like, you didn't know for sure. Like if the character made the made the right call and maybe you have the daughter pop up, you know, next season or something. We get resolution to that story. I think I would have been happier with that. I did have a question for you, though. Mbenga has been pretty much defined by this per, since pretty early on. Where do you think we see this character going next? Uh, mourning his daughter. Like, yeah. it, it's going to be kind of this trauma hanging over him, you know. Um, you, yes, the sacrifice. I think um, that the sacrifices that Mabenga would have had to agree, like, okay, I'll go into this cloud universe for the next five years, and then I can only sporadically pop up on the Enterprise, but I won't <laughs> be the chief medical officer anymore. Well, I mean, that would have resolved um, where that character's journey will be going once TOS kicks in. That's I know, that's, a, that's so kind of one of the weird things hanging over the future of this character as well, in, in that he is chief medical officer now, yeah. He's clearly not going to be in about five years when Bones is aboard, but he's still going to be hanging around the ship. I can't wait to see how they resolve that because <laughs> I think it's so difficult to resolve that in a way that lets fans feel like good about the decision. <laughs> Especially I... if like they get really invested in Nimbenga over the next five years or five seasons. Yeah. Um, I don't know. This one kind of, I think they were kind of reaching for metamorphosis, you know, the original oh. series episode. Yeah. And I don't know. Like I said, it felt a little bit more like move along home. Yeah. And I had a question for you. We see at the start of this episode, like Mbanga's obsessively working on this research to save his daughter. We have number one coming in. She's like, you know, having to order him to go sleep. Is this... Is this someone who should be the chief medical officer on a starship like this, like the flagship ship? He seems potentially compromised. Like, it seems like a case where, like, they should be sending him to a starbase somewhere to continue his research. Um, <laughs> is it the flagship, though? I don't know. Is it? No. It, like, okay. the only other, uh, the only uh, enterprise that was ever established as the flagship was the uh, the Enterprise D. But oh, okay. I, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Like, look, he's going through something. Uh, what, what? What tortured Star Trek character hasn't <laughs> had kind of a questionable 
uh, status aboard. Like I, to me, this this doesn't really bother me at all. It's like I get it. You're giving some the characters some pathos here. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, we are eight episodes into Strange New Worlds. I'm. I I almost kind of admire the show for throwing this episode in, even though I didn't like it. Um, it's not playing it safe when you're like throwing something this silly and ridiculous at the viewers. Like they were, they weren't just like giving us 10 episodes of action. That's for sure. Can I ask you this? Um, fair to say that the episodes since Spock Amok have been notably weaker versus kind of the, the ones that kicked off the first half of the season. I would say that is the case. And it's, you know, maybe a little telling that when critics were given episodes of Strange New Worlds initially for review purposes, they were just given the first five. So you kind of want to front load your really strong episodes there so that you get really good reviews. And I did really like Serene Squall. I thought that episode was a lot of fun. But yeah, mm-hmm. the um, the suffering episode was pretty pretty wobbly. And this one was just, I found rough. Some people seem to be enchanted by it, but I found it very rough to get through. So it makes a lot of sense, and it's not uncommon. When we did the um, drafting the worst episodes of Star Trek, I think we found there was like slots within those 26 seasons or 26 episode seasons where like bad episodes frequently fell. It was like ways of kind of like burying them in the back end of a season. Maybe that's what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, I, I We're looking at two episodes remaining in the yeah. season. I, I, I'm kind of like thinking like, why haven't we checked in on the Klingons yet? Or why haven't we taken a visit to, you know, planet Enar for a Hemmer journey? I mean, these are all things we can do in subsequent seasons, but it's kind of like if we're doing a bottle episode about medieval fantasy, I wonder if that one could have been uh, kicked down the road a little further versus kind of playing within the universe, you know? And, and I say that we have had like a really solid Gorn episode, you know, like mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Um, you know, maybe you don't want to get too fan service but, and we've got a couple episodes to go, but I would have thought we'd get like a, an appearance of Laurel, uh, right. by now, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the queen of the Klingons or the, uh, the chancellor, uh, the, the current chancellor right now. I know it's a new world where, you know, it's crosso- a strange new world. <laughs> a strange new world. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> where crossovers are, you know, great business and shared universes and all that. But I'm almost wondering if the show wanted to for its first season, just kind of stand on its own two feet before it started working in discovery elements like Laurel or perhaps Ash Tyler and whatever, just like establish its own tone, its own characters before they did that. So I'm just wondering if they wanted to stay off of the Klingons. Are you saying you want Ash Tyler to return? No, I'm not saying I want it, but I think it's probably inevitable. He does pop up at some point in the run of the series. Why? Why? They're going to work in Section 31. For sure. I know. Like, like I, I get what you're saying, but uh, I, I can accept that as long as we get a Who Frame Roger Rabbit-esque sort of uh, <laughs> premiere with the Lower Decks crossover episode uh, in season two of uh, Strange New Worlds. <laughs> I'm down for that. But I, I do wonder if the Klingons, because of... I don't know with the Klingons. It's so weird because, like, I was going to say Discovery Season 1 kind of did the Klingons kind of to death in some ways. They weren't the most interesting. That maybe they want to stay away. But that's like five years ago. So it's not like it's that recent. We'll reboot a Spider-Man in like two or a Batman. So I can't. I, that's not even a good justification for why we aren't introducing the Klingons. Other than like maybe they just want to build up the Gorn as their antagonists for now and we'll get maybe Klingons and you know Romulans well well we'll see what they do with the Romulans um but other you know alien species like that in coming seasons well uh, look it might just be a matter of like if Worf is coming back yeah to the Star Trek universe in season three I think we're gonna see that he's established with his typical look he's not <laughs> he's not gonna look <laughs> like uh Voke or Cole or anything like that wouldn't you love it if he did though <laughs> and he shaved head and everything i would love it if they just went full on season one discovery just yeah no hair whatsoever make him look exactly like that do the like coal paint across his face and i would love it just to like listen to the internet meltdown uh, and but the the crew they never comment on it once never not even the fact that he's carrying around a uh, synthesized dead baby's head 
exactly exactly it has a yeah. painting of laurel uh, in his quarters <laughs> uh it, it looks so maybe look get past season three of of picard maybe you return to the klingons then just get that out of the way but i wonder if what we'll get next so are klingons that look a little more akin to how they did in the original series I don't know if that's a winning game to try to tackle the ever-changing appearance of the Klingons, yeah. but I don't know. They they might have look if they've got a good idea to address that, then go for it. You know, like uh, if it's a crummy idea, we kind of got that with the Enterprise two-parter. That's um, it's actually we did a rewatch of it not too long ago, and it's not actually as bad as I remembered it being. It was mm-hmm. actually just the um, I think it was like the final five minutes of exposition that was quite uh, heavy-handed. But I think if they can find a way to kind of bring us back to kind of what we think of as a classic era version of the Klingons, then I think that could actually be a pretty fun thing for, you know, uh, Strange New Worlds to pursue. And also, Laurel, um, (laughs) not by design, but that character is very elastic because of the tumultuous writing of Star Trek Discovery. Like, we've seen her go through many different interpretations and phases. (laughs) So, like, I definitely think you could shift what the Klingons are on Strange New Worlds. I don't think fans are going to complain that much. And you could bring Laurel back, and I'm sure that uh, Mary Chifo can work with that. Like, I, she gets that character, and I think you could easily retrofit it to fit within the sort of brighter, poppier Star Trek show. I, I am curious, like, you know, we're, we have two episodes left in this season. The finale, I think, will be a payoff to something, whether it's Gorn or um, Cybok, who knows at the moment. Um, Either one, the fans will like them equally. Yeah, exactly, exactly. For your finale. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it's interesting to me that this first season has sort of, you know, you mentioned the Klingons. It hasn't taken real deep dives into that classic mythology we did have an orion last week but it was more like here's an orion moving on it wasn't about the orion and so i am really interested to see if this show continues on just introducing new concepts or if it has an interest in delving into mythology the way that really the tng onward shows did look they might still be just trying to as you said before kind of establish their own thing first but it's also I think if you are a new viewer and you're not super familiar with the series just yet, I think you still kind of get the sense that something's going over your head if they are doing kind of a deep mythology episode or at least a callback episode. You don't need to necessarily be familiar with everything. But, I mean, there's been some Star Wars TV show stuff where there's clearly stuff going way over my head that has to do with the animated series. And I just get that sense. <laughs> and it's really just me listening to podcasts where people have to explain it. And I, that is a lot of deep mythology. And just like, I, you know, good on the Star Wars fans who get it. But for just uh, casual fans like me, woof. I, 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 I'm like Dr. Ellie Sattler talking about chaos theory with uh, one Dr. Ian Malcolm. <laughs> yeah, like I think one of the goals of Strange New Worlds has been to kind of be an introductory show for Star Trek you know, potential Star Trek fans. And it seems to be working to a certain degree because I just have talked to so many people that are really enjoying the energy of the show and Ensign Mount in like particular has really grabbed people. I mean, obviously you did on Star Trek Discovery for us as well. And so like, on one hand, I think they're smart to kind of just make people love their characters and introduce kind of alien species of the week or issue of the week kind of stories. I think that's very smart. And I think at some point it would be very smart of them to reintroduce the Klingons in a way that feels like an introduction to people who've never seen Star Trek, but still can satisfy, you know, fans like us or whoever's listening to this podcast. Like, I think that's a tough balancing act. I think it can be done, though. You know, you look at, like, the way that, you know, say, like, the Kelvin verse could just introduce Romulans in a way where we can explain what they are very quickly, move on, the audience is with it. I think there's a way to do that. Um, I'm just really interested to see going forward, like if this show is interested in Klingons, Romulans, Orions, you know, Andorians, all of those species, or if it's looking to do that, like, you know, here's our made up alien of the week kind of thing. Something potentially problematic with bringing the Klingons back into the fold. And if I, they 
go down that path that maybe I was suggesting that you're kind of bringing them back to the kind of that old school TOS look. Yeah. Uh, recall TOS, the, the uh-huh. look included Darkface. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you're bringing back a character like Lorel, like what would be her distinguishing <laughs> features? She, she, like she would like uh, you're not gonna put these like Caucasian actors in Darkface. Obviously, good God, I hope the producers are smart enough not to do that. Also, kind of like the Fu Manchu um, mustaches as well, which were uh, yeah. yeah, kind of a problem of the time too. Well, Worf still got his right. I'm assuming it's true. But... They found a way to make it, I think, look better for Worf. But yeah. if you go back to the um, original series, like they're designed in a very specific way of kind of propaganda at that time. But I'm just I'm thinking like is Mary Chifo uh, as Lorella? She's just gonna be walking around um, with a baldric on and like <laughs> we're just said hey. Hey, Laurel, good to see you again. Like, <laughs> I, this might just be something they don't want to touch. It might just be easier yeah. for them not to touch, and maybe that's why they kind of stayed away from the Klingons. I, you know, maybe we only see the Klingons similar to the Gorn. It's just uh, through a ship, you know, not through uh, contact, you know, because it's kind of like, or like um, person-to-person contact, because, I don't know, it, just, it seems like the potential of opening up a can of worms, although I said if they've got a great idea, then go for it. Um if they're uninspired, um, well, I don't know. Go get a job writing for Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. I would be curious what like, what sort of the attitudes are in-house there with the Kurtzman company um, right now. Because like, Strange New Worlds has a very specific vibe. It is that sort of throwback to TOS kind of spirit. And like, I think the Klingons that were in Season 1 Discovery fit the tone of what that show was for that season. Like, that was a pretty dark, often very violent show. Those Klingons fit that world. I don't think those Klingons fit into Strange New Worlds very well. Yeah, I can't really picture it, you know. It, it's, I, like, I agree with you. Like, you have to do some redesign. Yeah, I, I think yeah. what they may have to do, and maybe this is the best approach I can come up with, um... You know, you had your pitching your fantasy episode that came true. This is my pitch for a uh, Klingon on <laughs> Strange uh, New Worlds. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder if, like, the key is introduce a Klingon. Make it a character, maybe even a recurring character that the audience can get interested in and find fun versus, like, here is the Klingon Empire. You know, like, maybe it's better just to work small. Introduce a character that's really cool. Yeah, he could be, I don't know, let's say a, a, a bounty hunter or something like that and he pops in and off whenever the crew needs a little bit of help and and i don't know maybe they kind of he looks halfway between a classic klingon and what we saw in discovery and maybe that's how they're kind of bridging the gap there yeah i'm trying to remember on um enterprise when they did the old school klingons how was the update on the makeup there um it, it it was uh Oh, what was the actor? Is one of the classic um, go-to? Was it James Sloyan that uh, okay. played the uh, the Klingon actor? I think they just left it with like his regular skin color, his skin yep. tone. They didn't give him dark make uh, dark face makeup, yep. and they gave him kind of the uh, the typical Klingon hair that we sort of know from the uh, the Berman era. Okay, like that could work. Just go with something like that. Yeah, that's like, the fun thing about Strange New Worlds is I feel like it has a lot of grounds to reinvent things. And honestly, like, do you think people would be upset at all if they reinvented concepts that were introduced on Discovery? I feel like they wouldn't. I don't think many people are going to be that angry. Except Section 31. You want that concept uh, continued on. Uh, mind you, can, can I, I, I forgot to mention this the other week, but uh, Michelle Yeoh, she signed on to a co-star in a Netflix series, folks. Um, and that show is not called Section 31. <laughs> no, it's not. So, I don't know. You guys can keep clinging on, clinging on to this, but uh, I just uh, doesn't really seem to be catching much traction here. What's the next Star Trek show they announce? Is it, okay, it could be anything at the moment. We don't really know. But, like, do you think it's either A, uh, Starfleet Academy, or B, something else completely? I would say Starfleet Academy, but... yeah. Dear Lordy, I am very fearful if the Starfleet Academy we get is what we initially saw in that, I think it's episode four or five of season four <laughs> yeah. of Discovery, where it's Tilly takes these uh, twerps on a, a shuttle 
mission that goes wrong. And I just, and it's just like at the end of the episode, they're all just like laughing and learning to get along at the end. And I'm just like, well, there you go. You've summed up your entire, you know, five seasons of uh, Starfleet Academy where these kids, they don't get along at first, but by the end, they're all buddies. I'm just like, where do you go from there? You yeah. know, it, it's kind of like no, no matter what new characters you create for the Starfleet Academy show, it's just like, like I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't think based on what we saw there, they, they have really cracked the code about what an Academy show should be. If they were announcing Starfleet Academy as the first of the Kurtzman shows, or coming after Enterprise during the Berman era, I think my excitement would be very different. Like, I would be like, oh, that sounds kind of cool and interesting. But where we are currently with the Kurtzman era, where it's been so weird behind the scenes, and, you know, Picard season two you referenced earlier, and I, I don't have a lot of trust in that team. Like, in many ways, even though I've been rocky on Strange New Worlds in the back half, like, it's been kind of up and down, I'm very happy with this show mostly overall this season, but my confidence is not strong with their other live action stuff. So it's very hard for me to look at something like Starfleet Academy, which has not really been done before. Like it's an interesting concept of, you know, young people going through like the training for Starfleet. Great idea. Um, but it's hard for me to think of that team and go, I have a lot of confidence in this being great. Look, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I hope that all they do, and I've been saying this for a few years, though, is they, they just rip off uh, the, what made the sitcom community so great. And they, I'm not talking about, like, making it a comedy, but I'm, I'm just saying, like, what made that show great is you had these very different characters in a dysfunctional study group. Ultimately, there'd be dysfunction within this group, but... You know, they were family in the end, and they had each other's backs in the end. And you put them in a confined space for extended periods where, like, I think, like, 50% of community took place in that single study room. Yeah. And I, I think you need to go smaller in scale with Starfleet Academy versus doing, like, this big extravagant uh, adventure every week where it's like you're finding any excuse in the book you can in which you announce... We're the only ship in the system. We have to go out to outer space and we need these cadets to help out right now. And it's, it's like, that. that's my big fear is that's what every single week will be. Either that or there's going to be some sort of green screen around, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge and they've really got to get those exterior <laughs> shots, you know. And just like, I'm just fearful that, that they're going to have the wrong instincts about what would make an Academy show really good. And that's making it like smaller in scale and focused much more on the characters than the uh, the adventure themes of Star Trek. And I think they have a bit of a competition between, you know, their show and Lower Decks, which I think Lower Decks has done a fantastic job at showing us young, you know, Starfleet members kind of learning on the job. And those dynamics have really clicked, those characters have really clicked, and they're a lot of fun to watch. So it's going to be tough, I think, to create a Starfleet Academy show that you don't compare against the dynamics on Lower Decks, even though that show is obviously much more of a wacky kind of sitcom scenario. Yeah. Um, I don't know, maybe a couple final notes about this one before we jump over to the uh, season finale of Obi-Wan Kenobi. But uh, <laughs> we did get to see Spock's third hairdo for the season. If you crawl, recall, uh, he's had his usual Vulcan look. We also got to see him have that human hairdo in Spock Amok. And you know what, while I'm at it, maybe it's his fourth hairdo, if you include uh, when he body swapped into T'Pring, and uh, he had, like, long hair for about uh, 25 minutes. That counts. That counts for sure. There you go. There you go. Uh, also, his fake um, uh, uh, facial hair in this episode looked terrible. Like, <laughs> really bad. Does it matter if it looks terrible, though, when it's, like, a like silly fantasy episode like this? That's a good point. Yeah. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, like, I'll just say, like, I was very happy to see an episode built around Mbenga and Hammer. Like, let's do more of that, but preferably without uh, the the silliness of this episode. Ah, uh, okay, Cam, I guess it's our final Orti Wan Cam Nobi review, uh, unless the show comes back for a second season, which there seems to be interest on the part, at least, of uh, Hugh McGregor. Um... Like, I, I, I hope you don't put me in the awkward position of defending a show that mm -hmm. I think is kind of, like, 
mediocre. It's like, I, I think this is a perfectly, um, like, it's a watchable enough show in that it's not a series that makes me angry. I just find it profoundly unremarkable. And there's a lot of stuff that doesn't work, but I just see a lot of the reaction is people saying, it's terrible. It's an awful show. I don't think it's that. I think it is just a profoundly unremarkable vanilla letdown of a series, which is something entirely different than what we saw with Star Trek Picard Season 2, in which that is objectively terrible writing that would make me angry. This is just the kind of writing uh, that we got throughout Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, that just fell flat for me and just left me feeling let down by the promise that was there. But uh, what's your overall takeaway as we uh, get into the uh, the finale here, sir? I was talking to a Facebook friend of mine. He was not a fan of Obi-Wan, and my response was, the content met algorithm requirements. <laughs> that is pretty much my take yeah. of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, this show had absolutely no interesting story to tell. Yep. Um, it was designed to bring back popular IP characters that are very marketable. Darth Vader, you know, having stormtroopers in there, all that sort of stuff. Like, that sells a lot of toys. Princess Leia, Luke. Um, and yet, like, I go, what was the point? And I guess part of it is, like, Obi-Wan coming to terms with what happened to Anakin. But, like, I don't know. Did anyone the last however many years, I guess it's been, what, like, 17 years or something since episode three has anyone been kept up awake wondering boy i wonder what obi-wan really thought about that my guess is no it just feels like a passionless story that was designed entirely to exploit popular characters like there was no you know concept of like hey what if obi-wan had a whole other adventure what if something interesting happened that obi-wan you know who was looking after luke had to go away for a while something that like it can even be Imperial related, but just something that's like an interesting standalone story that maybe teaches Obi-Wan a lesson. I think that would be compelling. If we get a season two, I hope that we would be able to reflect on season one and just think of it as eating your vegetables in which it's all about after a decade, Obi-Wan coming to terms with Anakin. And if we get a season two, then we can have more of a whimsical adventure in which Obi-Wan is swept off to some other mission, hopefully one not involving, you know, Leia or Luke or any legacy characters, uh, with the exception of some uh, uh, Force Ghost Qui-Gon at his side at all times. Uh, that would be <laughs> an absolute necessity for me. But it's just kind of like, like, like uh, the difference between Obi-Wan and Picard is, is Obi-Wan never made me angry. It just left me kind of deflated and as you said Kim, it was passionless and so i, I just kind of like I, I push back at people that say it's outright bad it's it's not bad but i understand why people don't like it you know it's because it's just so meh and there's a lot of stuff to like critique about this like the, the whole like like the Riva storyline, her chasing down Luke. There's there's no tension there, especially when when Uncle Owen is kicking like flower pots at her. <laughs> like, was this like the redemption of Uncle Owen's storyline that no one wanted? Well, I don't know. I mean, by the end, like he's like, I don't know. You want to meet Luke? And it's like, okay, I guess Uncle Owen's redeemed now. I, I don't know. It told us the origin story of the toy Luke is holding in Star Wars: A New Hope. <laughs> I know, I know. It's I don't know. It, it, it's like I don't. I, I don't feel like I need to ever return and check in on Luke or Leia in their adolescence ever again. I have zero interest in that. You know. So, so let, let's leave Tatooine for the love of all that is holy. I <laughs> never need to visit Tatooine ever again, ever as they continue these Star Wars adventures. Maybe we just if we get a season two. Let, let, let's start it off with Obi's already on some sort of space-bound mission in which, I don't know, he leaves just some throwaway line where he's just like, oh yeah, um, I have a very careful sniper droid looking after the Skywalker ranch right now. You know, like something like that. I mean, this episode had a couple things I liked. Like, this was one of the better episodes of the season, which is yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very sad. But, like, I, I liked... 
moments, moments, not the whole fight, but the fight between, you know, uh, Darth and Obi-Wan, like, when he slashed open the face and saw, like, yeah. you know, the human Anakin underneath. That was a really cool, like, shot. That's something I haven't seen before. I'm like, oh, my God, Obi-Wan actually came up with an idea I haven't seen before. That's yeah. amazing. That so, was like, awesome. I love that. Obi-Wan, you know, hurling the rocks at Darth Vader. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool, too. Um, the fight, though, like... <sighs> The other night I watched RRR, that um, Indian film that's proven to be a big crossover um, how, how hit. How is it? It's incredible. And okay. um, I I watched this movie and I made a fatal error. I watched that movie and then I watched Obi-Wan afterwards. <laughs> okay. Uh, RRR has so much, some of the most creative, unbelievable action I've ever seen. And so I'm like watching, you know, what this film crew did on, I believe it was like a $75 million budget around that. And I'm like... Yes, they ha there's some limitations with CG and things like that. But in terms of choreography, you know, using human movement, unbelievable. And then I'm turning on these fights, like on Obi-Wan, and I'm watching, like, you know, the director, like, shake the camera. And it's like, this is brutal. Like, this is so half-assed, it's unbelievable. And I know that they have far more resources to be working with than the people that made RRR. Like, Lucasfilm... All the fight choreographies they've had. Look at Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Look at what they achieved, you know, with that um, Darth Maul fight at the end of that movie. Like, that's a really fantastic action sequence. And I'm watching this, push, and it's just, yeah. I'll push back a little bit because, I like, um, you cannot have another Phantom Menace fight between these two characters. That's true. Like, we know that by the time it's eight years from now, these guys are geriatric. It looks as if they're <laughs> yeah. like just plunking like golf clubs at each other, you know. And what we're seeing right now, you know, you can't go back to even you know Revenge of the Sith style fighting. You know, like these guys are less practiced. They are, you know, older. You know, I think there is a limitation there. I think. What they were going for with this fight sequence that had a couple of good moves, you know. There, there's a moment where they're kind of back to back, and I just seen uh, Darth Vader's arm swing in this kind of loose way that I'd never seen before. I was like, okay, that that's an interesting thing that that came out there. So when and you mentioned it, like when you have kind of the stuff where you know uh, somebody finally finally takes aim at Darth Vader's little um, like uh, ventilation box there, and then you know slices at the helmet. I think that's more of the innovative stuff in which you're actually going for kind of the, the personal moments within the fight choreography versus making it as uh, complex as you can, you know, very much like mm -hmm. The Phantom Menace. So that's, I'm not going to judge the show too much on that. What I will judge the show on is when, you know, Obi-Wan is back on Alderaan. And it's some of the worst green screen. Like there's, <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like there's pixelation around uh, Obi-Wan's hair. Yeah, and, and I'm just like, what? What is this? Like, 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 how does that make it through? Like, um, kind of what I assume to be like top tier VFX artists, even though they're working on like a a TV budget. I, I, I look at all the other stuff that you can accomplish in TV, and this one just seems like something out of you know, you know, like like uh, 1993 or something. Yeah, there's a lot of shoddy effects that pop up throughout Obi Wan, but yeah, like I wasn't like trying to say that like I wanted to see them doing like backflips and all that sort of stuff. You know, like Ray Park was like what 26 when he's playing Darth Maul. What I mean more is just in terms of direction, shooting a very visually spectacular fight sequence. You know, like and you can do that with people that are older and have more like uh, you know well aged moves. Like I just think there's ways to make that dramatic. I think even like Empire Strikes Back does it, and like they could you know they didn't have like the fight choreographers they have nowadays it's just like uh, and it's something you and i have talked about a lot off mic of just like the frustration of watching how middle of the road most hollywood action is and it's frequently head scratching yeah that's why uh we implore all listeners go watch uh top gun maverick mm -hmm. and you know or, or even like uh, I'll, I'll bring up tom cruise again go watch mission impossible fallout you know like Yep. It is possible to do like engaging action that Fury Road. Yeah, Fury Road. And, you know, uh, these are all kind of like hyper realities. You know, it, it doesn't have to be kind of the Jason Bourne sort of like hyper realism sort of stuff, you know, and, and, and it's very effective. And you kind of wonder, is, is it just kind of, I don't know, lack of passion for it or, you know, just, 
I don't know, like, like, because knowing that it's possible, but you also know that uh, some very talented directors behind this, and, and maybe there's only a limited number of people capable of doing that. Like, I, I, I don't know. But then, aren't you kind of more often impressed by like uh, action movies from like, um, you know, like the the eighties and nineties though, in just how meticulous they are with crafting those action sequences versus I don't know, kind of this Michael Bay esque sort of directing that we get so often now yeah like i mean if you go back and watch you know the way spielberg directs sequences um even going further back like there's stuff that like errol flynn's doing back in like the 1930s and 40s that looks you know fantastic now it's that um ability to kind of channel like human movement into an action sequence and it's like they just well i don't know if it's just shorter production schedules i don't know if it's directors who just frankly don't know how to shoot a sequence it's, I'm sure, many things, the way that they, you know, pre all their action now and basically just tell directors what action scenes are. Um, I think there's so many factors. It's not just one thing, but you can definitely tell the cases that are special. Yeah. Um, what would you want from a, a potential season two of Obi-Wan Kenobi? I would personally just leave it and just let it go because... That's not what I asked, though. I know, I know. That's not what you're asking. So I guess I'll answer. <laughs> I'll answer that. But I would just say, like, I, the show has kind of convinced me that maybe Obi Wan's not interesting enough to carry his own show. Yeah. Um, but uh, if I'm going to have another, you know, season, it has nothing to do with Luke or Leia or Darth Vader or anything like that. Um, there has to be some element of his life. Like we just had the reconnection with Qui Gon Jinn. What do we really know about Qui-Gon Jinn? Like, maybe there's some sort of adventure they went on that could inspire a whole other story that introduces new characters. And you could have ghost Qui-Gon Jinn, you know, giving advice to him throughout that journey. Like, when you actually, like, delve into the Star Wars universe, uh, there's so many, you know, comic books and, you know, books and all that sort of stuff that I used to kind of relegate as sort of like, you know, the classic fan fiction, the way we kind of joke on the podcast about some of the Star Trek novels. But it's hard to watch a show like Obi-Wan now and then ridicule, like, spin-off novels. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know, more or less the same in some ways. And sometimes the novels are more creative. But usually, like, a lot of those stories are coming up with concepts that, frankly, have never existed in the movies. They're going off in whole other realms of the Jedi and other adventures and other antagonists and all, you know, different worlds. And it's the sort of stuff I would have hoped they would have embraced with Obi-Wan. They clearly didn't. But that would be my next season. It would be delve into something to do with Jedi Mythos, Qui-Gon Jinn, maybe a relationship that the two of them have, and maybe adventures they'd gone on and how it could pay off in the future, like a future Obi-Wan story. I would do absolutely nothing with these established elements that have been, frankly, milked to death. What do you make of the idea that, uh, you know, it's been too... Star Wars series in a row that have kind of fallen flat. I like. I think Boba Fett was actually like a, a bad show. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that Obi Wan was bad. It was just like profoundly uninspired. Uh, well, but it's Boba kind Fett of like... got bored with itself. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> you know. So I just like I, I'm hoping for like a big bounce back with uh, Andor. Yeah. And uh, I guess what's after that it'd be mando or the acolyte whatever that's supposed to be yeah the acolyte is the one that's perhaps the most interesting i really know nothing about it so i can't give any sort of then why is it interesting then why is it interesting because it's not based within any of these popular time periods it's going to be at least seemingly doing its own thing at a time period that hasn't been milked to death so that just that mere fact alone makes it more interesting to me than some of the other stuff they've got in the pipeline. But um, I am interested to see how some of the the more of the Mandalorian, you know, spinoffs they've got planned, like the one with Rosario Dawson and what have you. Yes, it's set within that time period, but like, I feel like the Mandalorian has kind of created its own little universe, the way that some of those comics and books have. So like, if that all kind of works together, I'm okay with that. At least it's building a new mythos that's interesting to follow. And Andor can kind of do the same. Like, that character is, like, a rebel spy. Um, but it's unlikely that, you know, Andor is going to be, you know, fighting it out with Darth Vader and things like that. It could be more like spy missions oh, dealing with... Well, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I should <laughs> never not. say that. Never, ever <laughs> say that. But, like, it could actually be, you know, spy mission-based stuff under Imperial rule. Like, that could be interesting. Maybe Qui-Gon's Force Ghost is just suddenly part of the crew for no reason. They never explain it. Honestly, like... If I am in charge of Star Wars and they're like, we want established characters going forward, 
I would be considering Qui-Gon because uh, that's a character that, like, let's be honest. What do we really know based on Episode 1, The Phantom Menace? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, there's there's room to explore, right? But, but like, are, are you, what, like, de-aging, like, Liam Neeson? Like, Liam Neeson, he did an interview. He said, like, he doesn't <laughs> want anyone else playing the character. That's why he came back and did the Force Ghost. I would de-age him to be 18 years old and tell the origin story of Qui-Gon Jinn. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was, I was uh, watching uh, the, the, the Red Letter Media review on YouTube, uh, the first four episodes of Obi-Wan, and they, yeah. they, they had a funny joke just about how uh, <laughs> because of Leia's kidnapping, it should have just been uh, Qui-Gon Jinn as Liam Neeson and Taken. Uh, <laughs> that would have been pretty funny. The, the the entire series here. I mean, it would have been a more interesting angle. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just one question. Wasn't Reva stabbed like through the stomach with a lightsaber last week? Yeah, but wasn't um, the Grand Inquisitor as well? At least that dude was off screen for more than a couple episodes. Yeah, but I think there's somebody else stabbed uh, in the stomach. Uh, Darth Maul. He was yeah, sliced again. through the stomach, and he came years back. later. Years later, he came back. I'm just saying, she was like back up on her feet, chasing down Luke in no time. Ming Na Wen's character, uh, she was uh, shot in the stomach, and uh, she That's came true. back. I, I think stomachs are, uh, I don't know, they're, they're, it's like uh, more like flesh wounds for these Star Wars characters. Except if you're, except if you're Qui Gon Jinn, <laughs> then, then they're fatal. <laughs> just <laughs> yeah, he could not take that stomach stabbing at all. Nope. Um, nope. Is this the last we've seen of Riva? I okay, so I'm a, I'm of two minds. Um, I, I'm gonna be honest. This character did not work. Yeah. The unfortunate situation is you had a uh, a large cadre of racist basement living losers mm-hmm. that are just the most vile people around, and they decided there's a character that doesn't work, and they are going to just be complete and utter trash about this actress and this character and this woman. I would like to objectively say I, I <laughs> that that to me that's why why the character didn't work. It just it, like she wasn't given uh, good writing. There were problems with like the direction that she was given. I um so, some issues with the performance for me and like I, I wasn't quite feeling it at, at times and other times she, she did quite well. So I would say I don't feel compelled to have her brought back, but I wonder if um, the powers that be would want to bring the character back in order to kind of tell a lot of uh, terrible human beings to pretty much f off. And, and if that's the case for it, then okay, fine. But I, I, just for me personally, and, and look, maybe this character worked for other people, but it, it really didn't click with me. And I think I'm asking her her motivations for the first, you know, 80% yeah. of the show, even though it, it, we kind of figured out what her motivations were pretty early on is it, part of the, um, the Picard and discovery problem with like, let's mask the motivations of our antagonists for some reason. Like, I don't know why, but um, I don't know. What, what's your take on Reva's future camp? My guess is this character was set up to potentially head off into a spinoff or Obi-Wan season two or something. And now it's just the question mark if that is the case still. Um, Because obviously the response was quite poor. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the the basement dwellers that were very vocal. I mean, just in terms of, you know, a lot of, um, you know, legit critics who wrote about Obi-Wan were not big on that character or that performance. So it's just a question of whether they feel they want to continue to, you know, use that character. I don't know. I think if you wrote them a solid story, it could work. And I have nothing but, like, sympathy for the actress. Because, like, let's look at it. You're, like, a 20-something-year-old actor. They come to you and are like, we would love you to star in our next Star Wars movie. Or Star Wars TV show, I should say. How are you going to say no? Of course you're going to say yes. Oh, and it's going to be Obi-Wan. You're going to be opposite Ewan McGregor. Of course you're going to say yes. No, a 20-year-old star is going to be like, who's Ewan McGregor? Okay, maybe so. <laughs> but nonetheless, then it's like, now they've given you a role that has very shaky motivation. The writing dialogue that is pretty boilerplate. And again, it's a character that's very, like, just all over the place. How are you supposed to give a great performance? Yeah. 
Yeah. Like it's a young actor who was given very poor material and hopefully I get to see her work in other roles and make a more educated, you know, take on how she is as a performer. Cause I don't judge Obi-Wan as a, uh, you know, great showcase for her talents. Yeah. Well, okay. So he moved out of the cave at the very end. Uh, is he just kind of couch surfing now? I guess so. Okay. You know, I just wonder if he packed up all his things is kind of hoping that Uncle Owen would uh, say, hey, you you want to chill? And the, the best he could do is just hand Luke a toy. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't well, know. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll be back next week, Cam, with, uh, of course, episode nine of uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. We're in the kind of the, 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 the final run here of the season. I'm hoping for uh, a ginormous bounce back in quality. Um uh elysian kingdom was a mess but that doesn't make me upset or frustrated with the show it's just this one particular episode whereas if this was episode eight of star trek picard i'd be like i don't know can't wait to explore more picard's psyche in uh memories of his father you know so that that would have me much more fearful versus what we're having with uh strange new worlds right now you know, that's the beauty of episodic Star Trek, though. We can always swing upwards, right? Like, who knows what next week is? You never predicted this would be episode eight. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> okay, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Visitor Homage, question mark, Smith. And you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N is in a nebula named Debra. The Debrila. <laughs> Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.